this morning, uh, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We'll pick things up in verse 1, where Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God uh, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. As you also learn from Epaphras, our fellow, dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it uh, is unshakable, it is unchangeable, it is always alive, it is always powerful, and it is always um, wanting to do uh, a new and a fresh work in our lives and in our relationship with you. And we pray that you would take these eight verses out of the book of Colossians and that you would speak them into our relationship with you today and into our Christian life. And Lord, we pray that uh, not only the words of our mouths, as thankful as we are for them, but the very meditations of our heart would be acceptable and a blessing in your sight, O Lord, as we consider your eternal truth that will outlive the heavens and the earth this morning. And we pray, Lord, for your blessing upon all of it to your glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I uh, had intended to continue uh, our gleaning series, having finished the gleanings in the book of Genesis uh, a couple of weeks ago, of just continuing that on into Exodus and then throughout uh, the Pentateuch. And, uh, but in that funny way that the Holy Spirit uh, does, I just couldn't escape the book of Colossians. It was everywhere that I turned, everywhere that I looked, every attempt to escape it and continue on with my plans uh, were thwarted. And so uh, we like to think that the Lord is uh, the head of things and the boss around here. And so we will do what it is that uh, we feel that I feel that he wants us to do for the next several weeks in the book of Colossians and then perhaps then get back to our gleaning series in uh, the Pentateuch. I've entitled this series in Colossians, uh, the Give Me Jesus, because the book of Colossians is all about Christ, and it is all about him in a very, very extraordinary way. And uh, the book of Colossians is very often referred to as the most uh, Christocentric 
a, a letter, epistle in the entire New Testament, and uh, it's doubtless true. Uh, the theme of the book is very, very simple. It drives home uh, the preeminence of Christ, it drives home the sufficiency of Christ and the centrality of Christ in the Christian life. That is that he is superior to everything else in the world and anything else that uh, we might think we would find uh, in the world. And what he has provided to us spiritually is sufficient for our every need. No need to look anywhere else for um, uh, for something superior and, uh, and thus the need to keep him central in our Christian lives. In other words, that the Christian life that God has provided to us, it cannot be improved upon. Uh, not by secular man, not by religious man, not by the saintliest of any saint, though what saintly saint would try to improve upon it. But it cannot be improved upon in any way. There's nothing better than uh, the gospel. There's nothing better than the Bible Christianity out there. We don't need anything else. And the reason that the Apostle Paul found it necessary to write this letter to the church at Colossae was that uh, a false doctrine, and probably at this point a series of false doctrines, had begun to entrench themselves in uh, the church there uh, at Corinth. And these false doctrines were, uh, when Paul wrote the church, this uh, letter to the church, they were still in germ form of what would ultimately uh, become formally known in the second uh, century as uh, uh, Gnosticism. And I'm not going to go into some long thing about Gnosticism. We'll talk about it in the coming weeks as it applies to each of the passages. But there was the idea that Christianity could somehow be improved by uh, human wisdom, uh, by human philosophy, or be improved by legalism, be improved by a extra-biblical mysticism and supernatural. Uh, there, the Christian life is a supernatural life, but this is something uh, they took it beyond that, a pseudo-spiritualism. And then the accommodating uh, of the flesh in the Christian life, rather than uh, calling upon people to resist carnality and resist sin. And of course, each of these ideas are very, very present today and uh, maybe even prevalent today within professing Christianity. And uh, if you take in all uh, liberal denominations in addition to everything else that uh, calls itself uh, Christian today. And uh, in our age, and I think uh, they're prevalent in our age, certainly uh, never more so than in my lifetime and maybe in the entire church, uh, church history where Christian leaders, Christian, uh, Christians themselves endeavor to brand or to market Christianity in some new way, uh, some novel way in order to make it more attractive to the world uh, or to satisfy uh, their own pride or their own carnal tendencies and to fashion Christianity to, into something that is very, very different from uh, Jesus, from his teaching, from his example, and uh, from 
his life. And so Gnosticism would ultimately become known as a heresy for the simple fact that it was and that it is. The solution to everything in uh, our Christian lives is to always bring it back to Christ, to always bring it back to his life, to his example, bring it back to his uh, teaching. And all of these false teachings and practices in Colossae were occurring simply because they had moved away from looking at Christ and seeing him as uh, in his fullness and what he came to establish and accomplish in the world, but also in an individual human life. And, uh, and the solution is always to bring things back to Christ, to his life, his teaching, and his example. And any church or any Christian that falls prey to false doctrine is a Christian, uh, is a, a, a church, or it is a Christian themselves individually that is ignorant to some degree uh, concerning what Christianity really is and who Christ really is. When a church or an individual Christian has a, uh, a genuine, a, a biblical, a true grasp on who Christ is, and the beauty of the Christianity that he birthed into the world in his death and his burial and his resurrection. When someone has really experienced that, that's become a part of their life, there is nothing that can be offered, whether in a religious setting or in the setting of the world, that could ever be offered to them, that they would, would even move them an inch toward it and away from what Christ presents in the scriptures, uh, to even give it a sidelong glance, let alone uh, to be captured by it and to me be moved away uh, by it. And the person who has a firm grasp on Christ, his teaching, uh, the scriptures will be more than satisfied spiritually. And as a result of that, be completely protected by all these new definitions and emphases in Christianity and these attempts to improve it, when in fact, uh, all that we ever will accomplish is tomorrow. There is nothing that compares to the Christianity and the Christ that is found uh, in the scriptures. In this regard, I think it's interesting to notice in this letter that, and it characterizes all of the Apostle Paul's corrective epistles, is that generally when he uh, addressed the various false doctrines and errors that then threatened these individual uh, early churches, he didn't educate the Christians about all of the heresies and, and all of the weaknesses of the heresies and the false doctrines. He doesn't spend page after page deconstructing them. Uh, he doesn't make anyone who reads the book of Colossians, uh, any Christian, an expert as a result of reading it, an expert in Gnosticism. What he makes them an expert in is Christ. And he makes them an expert in the Christianity that Christ has provided uh, to us. And he simply presents these things. He exalts the truth of Christianity, the truth about God, the truth about Jesus. And, and that in itself he knew 
would correct the error is that would be placed side by side against any new definitions or any new attempts to improve uh, this Christianity and it would expose the error as becoming, as being something far short of what Christianity actually is and who Christ uh, is. None of us has the time to uh, learn all of the doctrines. I don't have the time to become an expert on Mormonism or Jehovah Witness uh, uh, is. Uh, they, they say there are literally uh, thousands of religions that exist in the world. And there are many, many hundreds of different sects among what calls themselves Christians. Who would have the time? to learn the Bible and learn all of these other things. What do we do when we say, I don't have the time to learn all of this, to do what Paul did, come to the scriptures, become well-versed in what is genuine. And uh, then we will be able not only to identify what is false, but we will be fully protected from what is false. There is no Mormon who comes to my door. There is no Jehovah Witness who comes to my door. That by the time I close my front door, I am longing in any way for what they have or what they've attempted to do to Christianity and in their attempts to improve it. It not only, uh, and to know what it is that the Bible says about what is ours uh, completely inoculates us against error. And this is what the Apostle Paul does in the book of uh, Colossians. The classic example of all of this, of course, is uh, though we won't be able to use the example much longer uh, because money is disappearing. And uh, uh, mark my words, there'll be a mark on your right hand or forehead and someday in human history, not for Christians. But we see the cashless society move, moving rapidly around us. But the bank tellers, they, they become experts in the real currency to such a point that they can uh, immediately recognize what is false. And that, that's what Paul intends to do here in exalting Christ in this particular book. Now, the book of Colossians is a very devotional book, and it's also very doctrinal. It's even technical in, uh, in uh, uh, some portions of it. And it's important to realize that there is a very, very important relationship between uh, doctrine and our worship of the Lord, our devotional uh, relationship uh, in, uh, with the Lord in the Christian life. I think it's easy sometimes for a person that is uh, new to things or hasn't grown very deep in the scriptures uh, to come to a church service, and a church service is usually made up of two uh, major blocks. It is made up of, uh, of a block of worshiping the Lord in the singing of worship songs. And then the second block is the continuing of the worship of the Lord in the study and teaching of, of his uh, word. The person can sometimes think, I like the song part of the service more than the teaching part, or I think I'll find a church that it has more singing than teaching. And the problem with that is that we cannot really worship who we don't know. And our worship of God must always come out of 
our understanding of God, a biblical understanding of God. When you worship the Lord as you've done this morning and your heart soars in singing to him, your hands raised to him, you say amen, hallelujah in your heart. You do that as a work of the Holy Spirit, but also in response to some truth about God, some doctrine about God, some revelation of God uh, that you have learned from the scriptures and that you and I would never know apart from uh, the scriptures. And both parts of the service, both the singing and the study of the word, they're complementary. And the worship prepares us for the worship, worshiping and song prepares us for the worship of God and the study of his word and the teaching of God's word also equips us then for worshiping the Lord in song. Now, there's the, one of the, there are people that look at the book of Colossians and they say, the apostle Paul didn't write the book. I, don't, I may be simple. But when I see the first word of the epistle, and it says Paul, uh, I kind of think he wrote it. But you, you ask yourself, why in the world would they even trouble themselves with this kind of an idea? And the reason that some people doubt the, uh, the authorship of Paul related to the book of Colossians is uh, given the fact that uh, the epistle here contains 34 Greek words uh, that the Apostle Paul never used in any other of his uh, letters. They're completely unique to the book of Colossians. And, and this theory based upon that, it, it seems silly to me on a lot of different levels because which of us doesn't use a certain vocabulary based upon the subject of our letter or the subject of our uh, communication. I mean, when a microbiologist uh, writes something for his or her, her, her peers, uh, they use a particular vocabulary. But when that may, same man or woman sits down now and writes a letter uh, to a loved one, uh, they will use an entirely different vocabulary. And the reason that the Apostle Paul introduces a new vocabulary in this letter is simply because he's addressing a very specific subject that requires an expanded spiritual vocabulary uh, than one that would be required in his letter to the church at Philippi or his letter to the church of, of uh, Ephesus. The fact that Paul brings this church back to Christ and then provides them with a, a deeper understanding of Jesus, who he is, his life, his teaching, all of these things, reveals that it is possible for Jesus to lose preeminence even in a church that bears his name, that claims to represent him, that identifies uh, with him, it no longer supremely exists to worship him or to learn about him. He is not the supreme focus 
uh, of, of the church. He's not the supreme attraction uh, within the church to know him, to make him known as, as the, the old saying goes. And the fact that this is a reality of, that we have to be aware of, uh, we, all we have to do is to think about uh, the seventh, the final of uh, Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation when he writes to the church of Laodicea. I mean, it's jaw-dropping, it's astonishing. And, uh, and I don't say it as a, to say this is something that we're incapable of or that I'm incapable of, but I'm glad that it shocks me. I'm glad that it, it stuns me. But Jesus comes in his letter to the church at Laodicea and he is on the outside of the church and he is knocking and endeavoring uh, to get into the church. And nobody in the church has the foggiest idea that there is something wrong with that uh, picture. And the, the reason that this is the relationship of Christ to the church is because the church had become man-focused as opposed to uh, God-focused and God-centered. And that's why Jesus wrote to that church and he said, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so the church is I, 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 and it's all about man. It's just the church of Laodicea has become exactly like the world. It is just one more place that self is worshiped, one more place that self is exalted, and, uh, and Jesus uh, rebukes them. It's interesting that in the final four of the seven letters that Jesus wrote to uh, the seven churches, that he mentions his return. And it is, that has produced the idea that those final four churches that he addresses will characterize uh, the uh, four main expressions or representations of Christianity at the time of the rapture uh, of the church. And, uh, and, and so the church of Laodicea uh, will certainly represent the largest portion according to that theory. A church that had become so man-focused that God was no longer supreme, uh, Jesus was no longer preeminent. And I say this, and I say it with some passion. I could get up here, and you know that I don't. I could get up here every week and address some problem within professing Christianity. Uh, I could hammer away on it week in and week out. But I, I don't, that's not a focus that's on my heart, and I don't want to produce what can sometimes be produced in my own heart and in other people's hearts uh, by a steady diet of that, that kind of thing. But I will say that a lot of teaching that I see on television today, Christian television, is very man-centered. And it's very clear that God is not the most important person in the room. And he is merely presented as the means by which we, uh, the audience, might achieve our destiny, our dreams, our potential. And the entire focus is upon uh, the 
people that are there supremely, rather than a focus supremely upon God, yes, we must focus upon people. Uh, That's the order of the commandments, to love God with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. But to get those two commandments upside down in a church or in church leadership is to really head into uh, some real problems. And this idea that God is just this thing out there uh, that uh, is there to accommodate me becoming even more selfish in the final area of my life uh, that selfishness does not yet dominate. And and that is the spiritual side uh, of my life. It is a a, uh, disaster as it infiltrates the church in a massive way and increasingly, uh, as with the church at Laodicea, more and more Christians don't have the foggiest idea that it's all backwards. And I don't mention it as a thing that I think this is something that is, a, is an issue here, but it is so prevalent now, and it is so subtle now, uh, that, uh, that it is something that we need to be aware of for our own uh, protection. I was uh, in a, a gift shop uh, earlier this week and they had a bunch of these coffee coasters on this rack that you could go through and a lot of them were very, very funny as I, I was reading them. But one of them in this vein uh, 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 caught my attention. And this, so you picture this little coaster and, and, and embossed upon it, it says, you are unique uh, just like everyone else. And uh, a kind of acute pushback upon what we all recognize as nonsense, uh, but uh, still are so uh, quick to succumb to it and to become vulnerable to it. The background uh, to the writing of this letter in the year uh, 53 AD, uh, some 20 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the Apostle Paul went on his third missionary journey. And as a part of that missionary journey, he came to a city by the name of Ephesus. Paul's methodology in his missionary journeys was to go to the major metropolitan cities, the major urban areas, to establish a healthy, strong church in that major city, and uh, 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 then to appoint leadership, and then having established a strong church there, to then move and make his way to the next major city. He would then leave it to the Christians and the church that he had established and the leadership there to now take the gospel into the surrounding sphere of influence of the great metropolitan area. He considered that uh, their responsibility. And apparently a man by the name of Epaphras, probably saved during Paul's ministry uh, in Ephesus, Uh, He traveled then uh, as a native of Colossae. He traveled the hundred miles uh, back to Colossae. He preached the gospel to them, and he established a church there uh, in in Colossae. And uh, about eight years after having established the church, this problem of false doctrine then rose up. 
in the church, and as a result of it, Epaphras is so concerned that he makes the journey to Rome to discuss it with Paul, who is presently imprisoned there. Uh, to travel to Rome was a journey of a, between 1,000 and 1,200 miles uh, by land. And he's so concerned by what he sees happening to what God has birthed that he makes the journey to discuss it uh, with Paul. And this letter, as he comes to Paul and asks Paul to speak to the situation, the church, this letter to the church at Colossae is Paul's answer to the problem that he had presented uh, to him. And the book of Colossians is one of the four letters in the New Testament that are called the prison epistles because they were written by the Apostle Paul while in Roman prison during that same period of time. Uh, And the other three are Philemon, Ephesians, and the book of Philippians. And uh, Paul did not start the church in Colossae. Uh, In verse 4, he says that he had only heard of their faith. He hadn't seen it. Uh, Later in chapter 2, verse 1, he will declare that they had not seen his face. Now, Paul begins this letter with, as as all ancient letters began, with a personal uh, greeting or a personal introduction. And in the ancient world, if you were to write a letter to somebody else, there was a a criteria, there was a template for that. And uh, to write a letter, you would always identify yourself, number one, as the writer of the letter. Uh, and then there would be uh, the, uh, you would identify who you were writing the letter to, and then you would use some words of greeting, and then a word of thanksgiving. You would then move into the body of the letter, the, the real reason you were writing the letter, and then ultimately close it with uh, a benediction. And Paul follows that uh, here as he begins this letter. And he identifies himself at the very beginning, at verse 1, as the author uh, of the letter, Paul. And, uh, and in those days, again, there was no need to fumble through a scroll or fumble through a letter to the final page or the end of the scroll to see who in the world has written this to me. They identified themselves uh, right at the beginning. A little more rational than our letter writing, uh, where if somebody doesn't write their name on the envelope, we have to go to the uh, final part of the letter to see who's written it. And, uh, of course, our modern-day letters, emails, follow the model of the ancient world where the person is identified immediately. He tells them that he is an apostle. And, uh, and by virtue of, uh, of identifying himself as an apostle, he didn't, he didn't uh, uh, introduce himself to every church that he wrote to as an apostle. Uh, But here he does, and the reason that he does is that he is writing this letter uh, not as Paul the brother, uh, not as Paul the friend, but as Paul the apostle. In other words, he is writing this letter with apostolic authority, and he knows that when he, uh, he identifies himself, comes to them as an apostle, Uh, that he knows that they will understand that that is how they are uh, to uh, read this letter. And he declares himself to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Uh, That's his references for being an apostle. You don't get any higher reference than to be called uh, to what it is that any of us are called to than to be called to that by God. And so he didn't 
uh, exalt himself into becoming an apostle. He didn't take a correspondence course. Uh, that w- it didn't occur because some people thought uh, that this might be something he would be good at or that he had an aptitude for, or he looked at it and thought this might be a nice way to make a living. Uh, he knew he was an apostle and doing what he, he was doing because God had called him to do that. He also introduced Timothy here. Timothy was with Paul at the time and shared Paul's concern for the church. And so Paul uh, speaks of him. And then in verse 2, Paul identifies who he's writing to. Uh, To the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ Jesus who are in uh, Colossae. So he calls these individual Christians uh, in the church at, uh, at Colossae he calls them saints. And a saint is simply someone who's been set apart, uh, uh, set apart, and the idea of a Christian is set apart uh, unto God, and it's important to realize that every single Christian is a saint. You may, you may be a Christian and protest. It's, oh, come on, Pastor. I'm no saint. Ask my wife. Ask my husband. No, you're a saint. Uh, the moment we become a Christian... We become a saint. Our life is set apart now unto God for his use and for his purposes. And this isn't a point for uh, false humility related to the issue. The idea is that if we understand ourselves to be saints, then we will live like saints in the world in which we live. We will realize that our purpose in this world is now to be used by God for the remaining years of our life. And of course, Roman Catholicism has just completely muddled this in people's minds and given even a Protestant, evangelical Christians this false idea concerning sainthood. And Roman Catholicism has this very long, detailed process by which when a person dies and miracles are ascribed to their name and there are councils that are put together and witnesses and then ultimately one in a million will be uh, declared a saint. And the Bible knows nothing about that. And if you come from that background, it's important for you to realize that. Every one of us uh, as Christians uh, is a saint. He then, in his words of greeting to them, he says, grace to you and peace. And uh, these, uh, some of you very familiar with all of this related to the epistles, but not everybody is, so be patient with me and be patient with them. But grace and peace were the primary greetings to one another uh, in the ancient world. Uh, the Gentile, the Greek world, when you, when you would walk past them on the street, they would say a charis to you. They would say grace to you. May you have a grace-filled day. When you would pass a Jew, a Jew would then say to you shalom or peace. And so these are the two greetings, main greetings of, of the ancient uh, world. May your day be uh, one that is, uh, has the peace of God uh, upon it. It is important to notice that Paul uses the word in a particular order, uh, and the order is significant. He, he uses the word grace first and then peace. And in all of his letters, he never reverses it. He always keeps it in this order, and he does so uh, very, very deliberately. 
uh, uh, on his part. And the reason that he does this is because he recognizes that peace is a byproduct of grace. And the peace that we are going to enjoy in a relationship with God always comes as a result and as a byproduct of God's uh, grace and the realization that no one will ever know the peace of God in a relationship with God until we know the grace of God. If I didn't know I was engaged in this relationship with God on the basis of grace, on the basis of unmerited favor, I'd be a nervous wreck in this relationship with God. I would know no peace at all. And, and so the importance of, uh, of realizing uh, that this relationship we have is based upon grace and it's only there that we can then uh, have a relationship with God that is one that is filled with peace. And uh, some Christians live as if we're saved by grace and then grace disappears. And then now everything becomes works. That now the relationship is no longer based upon grace. But our salvation is based upon grace. Our relationship with God is based upon grace as well. And, uh, and it is because it is based upon the grace of God that we have peace in that relationship. And Paul says that this uh, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, in other words, this is the kind of relationship that God the Father and Jesus desires with us. If there's anything of the legalist in you that looks and says, this pastor is crazy. If you talk to Christians about the fact that they have a relationship with God, not just salvation, but a relationship with God that is based upon grace, people are just going to become wild-eyed sinners. You've got to use law. You've got to use fear in order to keep them in line, to have any hope of getting some semblance of, of holiness out of them. And, uh, and, uh, but here you have God the Father and God the Son saying, this is the relationship that they want to have with us. One that is founded upon grace and one that is characterized by uh, peace as a result of it. And then finally this morning, I want us to notice Paul's thanksgiving for those in the church at Colossae. And, and he, he focuses on the gospel, he focuses on our salvation uh, in Christ, and, and as he mentions these incredible blessings of the gospel and our salvation, it's a reminder to us of all that we have to be thankful for as Christians because of the Savior that we have and because of the salvation that he has provided uh, to us. Paul says first in verse five, uh, the end of the verse, he says, uh, we are thankful for the truth of the gospel because it is that gospel that has saved us. And the word gospel simply means good news. It means great news. But what is the great news? The gospel is the great news that God has provided mankind with salvation and the forgiveness of sins based upon the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
And the gospel is God's invitation to every single human being in the world to be saved and to be forgiven and to have everlasting life. That is an astonishing act on God's part and an astonishing provision by God uh, to mankind. I never lose my awe uh, over that. You just think about it. The price that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were willing to pay, uh, Jesus especially, but the Father as well, in order for us to have this good news concerning the most important subject in life, and that is our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins and a relationship uh, with uh, God. And you think about uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives. They say that the average person who becomes a Christian becomes a Christian on average the seventh time they hear the gospel. And, and hear this work of the Holy Spirit. Some of you can look back and say, I recognize it now how long the Holy Spirit was working in my life uh, to bring me to Christ before I was ever willing to do so or ever recognized his hand in my life endeavoring to uh, accomplish it. And this marvel of salvation, the marvel of God being willing to provide a gospel and then the Holy Spirit working day in and day out to bring us to the truth of that gospel. And we have, uh, and, and thus, uh, as he speaks here, and Paul does in writing to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And here's the Apostle Paul, immersed in Christianity, uh, Gnosticism surrounding him, uh, legalism surrounding him, every kind of error and false religion surrounding him uh, in the ancient world. And he declares that the gospel is not in need of any improvement. It doesn't need to be added to. It is the only truth concerning our salvation. And it is the truth on the most important subject uh, that we will ever consider in our lives. And we have, uh, as a miracle of our lives, we have that, taken that gospel, we have believed in it, we have internalized it into our lives, and it's become a part of our lives. We sing that song, that chorus, I'm happy to be in the truth. And I love to sing that line. I am so happy uh, to be in the truth. And you think about how dark this world would be, how gloomy this fallen world would be if there was no gospel, if there was no good news from God on how to be forgiven and how to be uh, saved. Uh, God's good news of the gospel. The second thing that he mentions here in, in, the, in the beginning of verse four is that we have cause for thanks concerning this salvation because of how it is received and how we make it our own. You notice those words, it happens through faith in Christ. In other words, God makes salvation a free gift uh, to us and it's re- received by simply putting our faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him as our savior, 
trusting him to be the savior and his salvation to be the salvation that pleases God the Father and that, and that pleases and is acceptable uh, in uh, heaven and to trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. And this salvation is received as easily as receiving a gift. How hard is it to receive a gift? It's not hard at all. Uh, it's, it's the easiest thing to do in life. And God extends this gift of everlasting life to us. And all we need to do is just put our faith in Christ, trust in him as the savior of the world and, uh, and in order to receive it. And this salvation not only provide, uh, provided us with the forgiveness of sins, not only has provided us uh, with a, a fresh new start uh, in life when we became Christians, but it brought us, you notice, into Christ. It's a faith in Christ. It brought us into relationship with, uh, with Jesus. It didn't bring us into relationship with a systematic theology or with a legalism, or with a uh, philosophy, or with a doctrine, but it brought us into relationship with Him, because He is the source of our salvation. And it's fascinating to realize, you can study it on your own, but in Christ is one of the Apostle Paul's favorite ways to describe Christianity. It may even be his favorite way to describe Christianity to Christians in, in his uh, epistles, and we can certainly understand why. Can you imagine going through this uh, current pandemic and all of the other shaking that's going on in the world today, going through it without a relationship with God? I can't imagine it. But I can't imagine going through five minutes without it in the best of circumstances. And I think no wonder so much alcohol and marijuana just flew off the shelves uh, and, uh, uh, during uh, this time as people are self-medicating uh, in order to deal with the difficulty of life. But there is no substitute for the peace and the joy that Christ himself brings into our lives. And I remember the emptiness of life. And I remember very well in my own life the loneliness of life, though in a crowd, until I became involved in the relationship that I had been created for, and you as well, to know God and to be in relationship with him. You notice third that Paul was thankful for their uh, love for all the saints at the end of verse uh, four. In other words, for the fact that this salvation not only changes our eternal destinations uh, and to change our eternal destination from hell uh, to heaven, but it changes our lives now. It provides us with a new nature. It makes us into a new creation. And their love for their fellow Christians was an evidence of this miracle of the Holy Spirit that it happened in uh, their lives. And so these Christians were thoroughly saved as the old saying uh, goes. And that's what Christianity does. It thoroughly saves a person. 
doesn't just save their noggin, it also saves their heart. It saves us from uh, 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 the inside out. It changes everything about our lives. And you just stop and think this morning as we think about the blessings of our salvation. Think for a moment of the person you were before you became a Christian and the person you have become as a result of this gospel and this salvation in your life. And then in verse five, uh, number four, this gospel, this salvation provides us with hope. The hope or the steadfast confidence that our salvation ends one day in an abundant entrance uh, into heaven itself. And Paul makes sure that we know that this isn't something that's in play for us as Christians. This isn't something that's iffy. That the fact that we will one day stand on that glassy sea in heaven uh, is, is a sure hope because it is laid up in heaven for us. In other words, this salvation, this hope and this confidence of heaven lies beyond the reach of any circumstance we will ever face in life. Nothing will change it. And uh, how wonderful to uh, realize that. Again, in this pandemic, to watch how many people fearful, panicked, because this life is the only one they have. And they possess no confidence in the face of death. I read a letter to the editor in one newspaper, and the lady was writing with all seriousness about people walking outside in parks and walking outside up and down the streets, even with social distancing. And she wrote, when I see someone walking toward me without a mask, I view them as a person who is approaching me with a gun. I'll guarantee you she's not saved. And I'll guarantee you she has no answer for death. And I guarantee you she has no confidence of heaven at the end of this, uh, this life. And the confidence that we have, the fear of death, that it has uh, delivered us from uh, in this, uh, this life. Number fifth, we notice in verse six, the end of it, this salvation bears fruit in our lives. Paul writes, it is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard. And so a fruit tree, what is a fruit tree? It is alive, it is dynamic, it is life producing. And like a fruit tree, this salvation, Paul is saying, it is a living thing. It is a dynamic thing. It's brought a new and living and spiritual dynamic into our lives. It provides us with the will to do and the power to do of God's uh, good pleasure. And again, there is no explanation for the quality of the life that we live as uh, Christians apart from this. Again, remembering what we once were and then the gospel, not only providing us with forgiveness, not only providing us uh, past and then providing us with the confidence of heaven future, 
but what this gospel makes of a human being uh, in the present tense. And Paul, as he uh, remembers what he certainly was before he became a Christian and the man that he turned into, and he knew there was nothing in all of the world that uh, compares to the change that this gospel makes. And then sixth, at the end of verse six, this gospel is based upon the grace of God. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 very well known for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself it's a gift of God not of works lest anyone should boast how in the world could we have a relationship with God on the basis of anything but grace what kind of an exalted view of myself, what I have to have to think that I can add something to this finished salvation or bring something that would cause God to think that in some way I merit his forgiveness and the marvel of the Christian life that I enjoy uh, every uh, single day. And here as Paul uh, speaks of this, the salvation based upon uh, the grace of God, this is just the first of many axe blows that he is going to lay to the roots of, of, of legalism uh, in this epistle until finally he tears it out by the roots in, uh, in chapter two and it is needed as much today as ever it was 2,000 years ago. The only reason that our salvation is sure, the only reason that our salvation is secure is because that salvation is based upon uh, the grace of uh, God. And somebody may say, well, where in the world does obedience come in? Oh, it comes in, but it comes in as a response to how good God has been to us not an effort to earn anything from God. And a response to God's grace is a infinite motivation for obedience and holy life. No other motivation compares to it. And then finally here, seventh, uh, at the beginning of verse six, this gospel, this salvation, Paul says, has gone out into the whole world. In other words, uh, what the gospel had accomplished in their lives, the individual Christians there uh, in Colossae, that it will accomplish in any life. And this, of course, speaks to the privilege of carrying this message to other people with the confidence that it will do in them what it has done uh, in us. To look at any human being in the world and to realize no human being is beyond hope. No human being is beyond the grace uh, of of, uh, God and the power and the hope of the gospel. And you look at how messed up the world is, and it's getting worse by the day. And you look at the problems of the world, and I watch the news, and I do all of the things, and I'm, I'm some kind, I've got some kind of a thing that I feel like I've got to fix everything. 
So my noggin goes to work on how to fix the problems and what's the solution and what's the difference between the symptom problems and the core problems and then your, your mind just blows up in, in the whole thing as you see how complicated the world's uh, problems have become. And what do you say to a person who's made a complete mess of their, their own life and as big a mess as the world has made uh, of the world? And what do we offer to them? Say, ah, the only hope for you is 10 years of, of therapy. You've got to get into this program or into that program or to read this book or this uh, other book or listen to this series of tapes. No, to be able to say to any individual, your greatest need is that you are a sinner. Your sin has separated you from God, but God loved you so much he sent his only begotten son into the world to provide you with a savior and a salvation that will uh, one day land you in heaven itself, but will make you into a completely different human being uh, in uh, the meantime. And to be able to declare that gospel to people with the knowledge that the moment that gospel is received, everything changes for that human being. And maybe that might be you in this room or in the courtyard or at home or wherever it, uh, this sermon might end up going. The realization for you, as the old saying goes, and it's a wonderful old saying, uh, there are none who are so good that they need not be saved, but there are none who are so bad that they cannot be saved. It takes those, that, that 10% at each extreme that can have doubts about salvation, and it, uh, and it speaks truth to that 10%. God will save you this morning and he will love to save you uh, this morning. And at the following of our service here, there'll be men and women up in front here in the sanctuary, also up in front in the stage area, uh, outside in the courtyard, and they would love to answer your questions and pray with you to become a Christian here uh, this morning. And so Paul begins this letter with a celebration. And he begins it with a song of thanksgiving for the gospel, for our salvation. And what he's essentially communicating to us as Christians, both then and now, is you've got a winner here. Uh, what you have cannot be improved upon in any way. Don't give it up for anything. And someone may uh, sit here, and I may have lost uh, some one or two in, in, in uh, five minutes in this sermon, or 10 minutes, or at 30 minute point uh, in the sermon, and someone can think, well, I know all of that stuff. Well, I know all of that stuff too. But I think it's good every once in a while for us as Christians, especially if you're like me, you've walked with the Lord for a long, long time, many, many decades now. And we operate from this position of being saved to do what Paul clearly wants the church at Corinth uh, to do in our own lives. And that is to stop and to reflect upon the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of this salvation, the marvel of it, the miracle of it, the wisdom of it, the perfection of it, the privilege of it. And to, and to regain a fresh awe of it and with the realization that that wonder will forever and always protect us 
from all manner of spiritual nonsense that exists in the world. One of the great words that is used repeatedly by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Philippi is the word joy. In a comparable way, the word that he uses repeatedly in his letter to the church at Colossae is the word thanks. The word thanksgiving. And it is a key protection against what is false. To stop and remember what is true. To freshly engage it. To freshly immerse in it. To experience a fresh thanksgiving for all of these things that can just be doctrine after a while in our relationship with God. And for that to happen will forever protect us from anything that is false. And so today might be a good thing for some of us to just take five minutes in the privacy of our own lives later in the day and just marvel at the gospel, at the work that it has done in our lives, the person that it has made us into, what it has introduced uh, into our lives, what we once were and what we are now because of the gospel. And to be once again filled with a great, great thanksgiving. And if possible, a thanksgiving that is greater now than the day that we were saved. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the salvation that you have provided to us. We thank you for the sacrifice that was involved in you sending your son, Jesus. We thank you for your sacrifice in making this possible. Thank you for bringing a hope into the world uh, that would not otherwise even exist in the world. And what an awful, dark, doomed place it would be without your truth of salvation. Thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit that drew us to you and continues to draw people to you. And we pray, Lord, in this sanctuary, out in the courtyard, in homes, for any person that isn't saved, for that work of your Holy Spirit to bring them into Christ and into your family today. And I pray for myself, I pray for everyone that stands before you now, Father, and anywhere we have lost in awe, anywhere we have lost a deep gratitude for this salvation and what it is that you have done for us and the vulnerability now that it is uh, uh, producing within our lives, maybe not to religion, uh, maybe not to false doctrine, uh, but to the temptations of the world, that you would return us, Lord, to a sense of awe and gratitude that is uh, something approaching worthy of the sacrifice that you have made in providing this gospel to you. Thank you for saving us. And thank you for our Savior. And we thank you in his name, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Mike, would you close us?